This morning we continue uh, in our series, Psalms of Hope. You can be turning in your Bibles to Psalm 73. I was talking this morning actually with uh, Warren, one of our older saints, just how much I love the Psalms. And he says, the Psalms give us words to speak when we don't know what to say. Uh, and I thought that was, was so uh, good, such a good truth, that the Psalms give us words when we don't know what to say. How many of you enjoy playing games? Board games, card games, any kind of games? Yeah, a couple game heads in here. Uh, how many of you have ever been dealt a bad hand in whatever game? And it seems everyone else gets dealt a better hand than you do. And immediately we cry out, that's not fair. And what is the response that people typically give? Life's not fair. And we quickly brush it off because at the end of the day, even as competitive as we can be, it is just a game. But if we change the situation, the scenario a little bit to something that's a little more difficult when life deals us a bad hand, when we see injustices occurring around us, when we lose a job, when we lose a child, when a parent gets diagnosed with a terrible disease, when we lose a loved one. We could go on and we could say the same thing, that life is not fair. We examine the circumstances that we find ourselves in and we say, life, it is not fair. That's not fair. And really, the one that we're going to with our cry of that's not fair is to God. The one who we say is, in control over all things. We want to know the answer to questions, why do bad things happen to good people? Or, why do good things happen to bad people? And if we know our scriptures well, we could think of Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, that says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts and so there's the answer that yeah God's thoughts are higher than my thoughts he's the creator of all things if my thoughts were higher than God's thoughts he'd cease to be God he wouldn't be one that we could look up to but that doesn't answer the question is God fair is God good when life doesn't seem good and is Christianity really worth it our Sunday school answer says, well, yes, of course, God is good. Yeah, Christianity is worth it. But the answer of our experiences is often no. Because we do experience these hard times, and it begs the question, why does it seem like the wicked out in the world are prospering and I am dealing with my own internal suffering? We don't feel like God is in control at times. I think it's safe to say that more people have left Christianity or walked away or rejected it because of the inability to reconcile how a good and loving God can allow pain, suffering, and injustices to run rampant in the world. I mean, if God was good, he wouldn't allow suffering. If God could, wouldn't he stop suffering and wicked and evil in the world? And these are big and important questions that we need to answer. And if this isn't a question that you haven't asked yet in your life, 
I'm telling you that at some point you'll find yourself answering or asking this question. This is the psalmist helping us prepare for that. This is a question that I was not prepared to answer when I was 20 years old returning from a summer camp with my friend who served as a youth pastor and I watched the bus that he was on crash and flip and him pass into eternity along with his pregnant wife and many students injured returning from summer camp a time where they were hearing about the gospel and hearing the good news and my friend was preaching Jesus boldly and yet here I am at 21 20 years old asking the question God how is that fair why would you take my friend who was a faithful pastor into eternity when there's so many other wicked people who I would never miss the psalmist helps us answer that question today. And today we'll see four responses for when we think that we've been dealt a bad hand at life and when we want to call a foul on God. So if you could turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73 and stand for the reading of God's Word. The Bible says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they had no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues stress through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. They say, how can God know? Is there not knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands of innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generations of your children. But when I had thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. For truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How are they destroyed in the moment, swept away utterly by terrors? Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is 
good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Our Father, we, we ask for your help this morning as we turn to the scriptures to answer the question, are you good? Are you fair? We pray that you would give us wisdom, that your spirit would guide us, that you would use humans to speak the truth of your word. We ask for your help this morning in your son's name. Amen. You may all be seated. The first way in which we respond when we think we've been dealt a bad hand is to pour out our heart to God. This psalm in particular is brutally honest. It's a confession from the heart of Asaph to God that he felt like he had been ripped off. He took his doubts and his confusions to God in prayer. He in no way pretended as though everything was fine, that everything was good. But instead, he, like Job, you might recall the story of Job, a broken man struggling with the raw deal he'd been dealt, as God had taken away all of his possessions, his family. He found himself without anything, not even his health. And Job, in Job 29 through 31, this broken man wrestles with the tension of holding on to God's goodness and his sovereignty while dealing with the tragedies he was experiencing. And through it all, he stayed real with God and said, God, I am so angry at you. What is it that I have done to deserve this? What did I do to make you angry so that I would experience such great suffering when I have been faithful to you all of these times? God, I want an answer. This is what Asaph is calling out. He says, God, I want an answer to the question, why is this happening to me? The difficulty with Job is that there's no record of God ever rebuking Job for being honest without God ever giving Job an answer to his problems. But Job comes out on the other side better for it. God actually invites us to bring our sufferings to him. God offers this invitation in Isaiah 43, 26, where he says, Take me to court. Let us argue our case together. God is saying, state your case so that I may be vindicated. Psalm 145, 18 adds that the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Asaph is recounting all that is going on, all that he is experiencing. He starts off with the truth that he knows in verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Asaph had an intellectual view and understanding that God blessed those who obeyed and followed after his commands. We can get behind that thinking, right? It makes sense if we obey and follow after God that there would be blessings that come as a result of it. We know this to be true. Asaph is saying, God, I know this to be true, but I'm beginning to doubt. He then proceeds to air his dirty laundry before God in verse 2, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled because I was envious. I was jealous of all the wicked people all around me. He's jealous that the wicked are prospering, that they have no concern for their life, that they aren't dealing with the issues of the rest of mankind. And on top of all that, 
these people are mocking God, which we think if we know our Bible that there's times when people mock God and he killed them instantly. And he's just wondering, God, why are you allowing them to mock you? And yet, they're doing all of these things and they are still prospering. They are still feeling blessed. How can people be so wicked and evil and yet you, God, who is supposed to be the judge that keeps everything balanced, you seemingly keep rewarding such wicked behavior. How is any of this fair? And we can easily do this as well, right? We view our employment, our health, our financial stability, all of these things as blessings from God. But when something goes wrong, we simultaneously start thinking something is wrong with our relationship with God because now all these things that were blessings, I'm now dealing with struggles. When in reality, God never promised that it's health, wealth, and prosperity for you. In fact, in John 16.33, Jesus said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, though, you will have tribulation. But take heart because I have overcome the world. Jesus promised his disciples, hey, you'll have internal peace. You'll have a security. But in the world, you're going to face suffering, death, tribulations. Asaph is beginning to doubt whether or not God is truly good. He's saying, I don't understand. And I think it's important that we, we think about this, that doubt isn't a bad thing. That doubting God isn't necessarily a bad thing because our Christianity better be bigger than blind faith. Otherwise, when these struggles of life come, when difficult situations come, we're going to be in big trouble. Doubt is not the enemy of faith. But in fact, our doubt can drive us deeper into our understanding and relationship with God. Mark 9.24 says, I believe, help my unbelief. Which is a story of a father coming and his son is demon-possessed. And he says, Jesus, please heal my son. I believe, help my unbelief. There's this like holy doubt that he's facing. He says, I know this to be true, that you are able to heal my son but I'm struggling to actually believe you will do that. Which is the same for us. We understand, we know the truths of Scripture. We know that God is good. We read in the Bible that God is sovereign, that he is in control over all things. But when we doubt, we cry out to God the same way. and says, God, I believe these things about you. I believe them in my head. Help me believe them in my heart. Help me to process what is going through. And the comforting thing is that God is big enough to take your anger. He's big enough to take your pain. He's big enough to take your questions. The Psalms give us the words to say when we don't have the right words, an expression of the feeling. Asaph is angry. He's furious. He's upset and he's letting God know, God, let me understand. Why is this happening? So I encourage you, when you're struggling, when you're doubting, take it to God. Go on. Tell him. Don't keep these emotions built up, cooped up inside of you, building layer upon layer of resentment and hardship. Dealing with all of that stress, eventually it's going to come out. 
bent of anger towards other individuals, headaches, ulcers, bitterness, privately rehearsing in our head, God is not good. God is not doing these things. Instead, God says, hey, unload all the ammunition you have because I have the answers for you. But you need to understand that you may not like the answers that I'm going to give you. God is waiting to talk to you. And God can take it. If he couldn't take our anger, our questions, our doubts, then he's not a God we should be following after. And we understand that in our questioning, like Job, we may not get the answer we want, but we'll get the answer that God knows that we need. The second way that we respond to this is that we weigh our choices carefully. In verses 12 through 14, Asaph's envy had taken his heart that he was so fed up with godly living that he was angry, he was disillusioned, all these wicked people are blessed. And he says, I am your faithful servant. He says in verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands of innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken. Asaph is saying, hey, listen, these wicked people, they're prospering. I have faithfully served you. And my faithfulness has resulted in the opposite of blessing. Instead, I have been stricken. We don't know what he was stricken with. He was dealing with some sort of physical pain that he didn't know how to deal with, that he wanted gone. He said, I served you, God, and now you're striking me with some sort of sickness, some sort of disease. And still, in verse 15, he stops to consider the impact of his next steps and says, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. Asaph is gaining this understanding as he's weighing his options. What's going to happen if I air all these out? Asaph realizes that if he brings out publicly his internal struggles, letting his cynicism and anger out into words. He is serving as a priest, as a worship leader, as a pastor is another way to think about it. He's saying, if I would have let these words out, he understands that he would have become a tool of Satan for ruin of God's people. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, that when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I, for one, am not one to, when I come through a difficult circumstance or a difficult trial, do I instantly think, man, I can't wait to see what God's going to do through this. I'm so glad this hardship's come into my life. But we need to remember that these moments we go through in life, no matter how difficult they are, are not a waste. But God uses these difficult circumstances for his glory and our good. But in our lack of faith, the wicked one uses it for the opposite, to draw others to doubt God. How many rash words or 
actions have we wished to take back because of negative consequences they've brought? And that moment of anger towards your spouse wishes you had kept those words in, that you could just grab them as they were going out, but instead they went out and they cut so deep. We do things that bring regret and heartache because we didn't stop to consider the consequences of our words and choices. We wish we would have just put our foot in our mouth so we couldn't talk at all. But instead, in moments of anger, confusion, and doubt, we just word vomit out things that can cause more harm to others than just ourselves. Asaph paused to realize that his decision would have ripple effects on others. That his doubt professed publicly to God's people would have caused others to doubt and stumble. And so I urge you, follow his example. Tracing the result of your words and actions will have on your family, your friends, your lost acquaintances, the church. It's one thing to be wrestling with God's goodness in a situation. It's another thing to declare on social media and to the world that God is a fraud. That doesn't mean that you can't deal with your struggles and doubts and talk to other people about it. It's saying be careful that you just don't, in a moment of anger or haste, declare God can't really be good. Instead, seek wise counsel. Asaph, in this circumstances, going to the one who can give the best answers, God. Which takes us to point number three and how we respond is we need to get the big picture. Here's where Asaph's perspective is expanded, where he's going to start zooming out on his life and understand what's truly going on. Listen to his words in verses 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. So he enters the sanctuary. Asaph went to church. He enters the sanctuary, the temple which would have the two tablets of God's law, the Ark of the Covenant, the altar of sacrifice, the mercy seat, and all the signs of God's covenanted promises and faithfulness. It is here where he sees and meditates on the covenants that God has made to Israel up to this point. Where God had proven himself in the past, he had made a promise, and then there was a fulfillment of that promise. He hears afresh, perhaps, the covenant of blessing and curses and gains full perspective of what's going on. That temporary satisfaction is nothing compared to eternal satisfaction. He brought his confusion under the truth of God. As long as Asaph tried to reason in his own mind his way out of the troubled perception that he was having, he was dealing with this. He, he saw it as wearisome. He didn't understand. And so he goes to worship God. He takes it before God. He says, it was oppressive to me. The envy that he had had for the wicked was like a blinder to his eyes. It's all he could see in the moment. And it wasn't until he went to worship that those blinders came off and he could see the full perspective of what is going on, what God had done in the past, and what he had promised he was going to do in 
the future. He understood that their immediate pleasure was all they really had. Asaph was getting a look outside of himself. I mean, we get this, right? Hindsight is twenty twenty. We look back and we can see, oh, that's what happened. Oh, I, I shouldn't have done that. Asaph is looking back, but instead of looking back at just his own life, he's looking back and seeing what God had done throughout the history of Israel. In worship, we can glimpse God's infinite perspective. We can glimpse it. We can't fully understand all that God is doing, but we can glimpse it. You can sense that the music director's relief when he comes to worship. Everything has changed in the sanctuary of God. His focus was not on his problem. His focus was on God. And that took away all of his problems. He then was reminded of God's attributes, God's character, God's power, God's covenanted promises. He could see both God's judgment of sin as well as God's solution offered to the sinners. Eternity broke into this temporal perspective. All Asaph could think about what was going on in the exact moment he was facing. He wasn't getting the full picture. But continue on in verse 17, it says, I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by terrors. He then understood that their prosperity, that this riches, this blessing that they had been given, these wicked people that he had been so envious of, was just a moment, was just a flash in the pan that they enjoyed the sin for a time, and perhaps from a human perspective, that they were going to enjoy this blessing for their whole life. But in the end, Asaph saw that their life would be totally destroyed in the end, completely swept away by terrors. Their prosperity was temporary. Their enjoyment of sin, not worth it. Asaph realized that the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. 1 John 2.17 God completely controls their destiny, not those wicked people. They may think, they can mock God saying, I'm the ruler of my own universe, but at the judgment day, God is their ruler, and their end is terrible. Asaph is beginning to realize that True happiness is beyond the reach of any evil life can bring. Meaning that even though he's stricken, even though he is suffering, even though he's experiencing these doubts, true happiness lies beyond what this world has to offer. He's gaining a full perspective. He's seeing the big picture now. He's zooming out from his life and saying, there's much more going on than I had realized at first. Which brings us to our last way to respond, and that's to renew your relationship with God. Armed with a new perspective about what God and this world have to offer, Asaph also sees himself clearly. Envy had poisoned him. 
made him jealous, made him wicked, made him forget what he had known about God. He starts with, yeah, God is good to Israel and those who are just and pure, but his envy, his jealousy had poisoned his heart. It had taken him away from his love of God, of what he had known to be true. And that's why he confesses in verse 21, when my heart was grieved, my spirit embittered. I was senseless. I was ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Saying, God, I was like an animal. I forgot all the goodness that you had given me. Asaph confesses his self-pity, his self-centered bentness, and then in worship he renews his relationship in praise. He confesses, God, I was nothing more than an animal. I thought the gifts that you gave were better than you, the gift giver. And so in his worship, he renews his relationship and praise. He says, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? The earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is, my str- is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all the unfaithful. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Asaph takes his raw deal to the right place. He takes it before God. He says, God, here's the hand you dealt me. I want some new cards. And in the end, God says, no, these are the cards I gave you, and they're for your best interest. He goes and he says, I want something new, and God changes his heart. Everything now looks different to him. He realizes that all the things that he thought were curses to him are now blessings to him because he has the one thing that those wicked people don't, a right relationship with God. He praises God that he is always with us, that he holds us in his hand, that he guides us, he counsels us, that he is with us all the day long. And when our day ends, someday here on earth, he goes on and says, and God, you are with us in glory. He breaks out and says, Whom have I in heaven but you? You are great, God. You are better than anything this earth has to offer. And you are what I truly desire because you are truly good. Better than anything this earth has to offer. On earth, my flesh and my heart will fail. Right? We understand this. Our people get sick. People die. As we get older, our body doesn't work as well as it did when we were younger. And God says, hey, even though your flesh will fail, I will never fail you. The strength of my heart, which is God, is my reward forever. His once pain, Asaph's once pain, his lament, his complaint to God has now turned into his love for God. It's turned into praise. St. Augustine comments on this and says, God alone is the place of peace that cannot be disturbed. And he will not withhold himself from your love unless you withhold your love from him. 
life and glory with God will suffice for healing of all wounds and the answering of all questions that Jesus has promised. He goes on and restates the truth that those who are far from God will perish. And all those who are unfaithful to God will be destroyed. He then says that it is good to be near to God. It is better to have him than everything the world has. That Jesus offers something better than any of the riches we can imagine here on earth. That God is sovereign. That we are not the ones in control. That we are not the ones who get to call the shot. That God gets the final word. That takes comfort to him. He says, God is my refuge. He says, they can do whatever they want to me. This, whatever I've been stricken with, I can deal with it because I know I have a refuge. I have a safe place. I have a comforting place that I can go that will last for eternity. That's the presence of God. That God in his dwelling place is strength and protection and hope. Now he is seeing that the end is not really as bad as one had thought. He starts talking in the first section of this chapter that they don't have any concern about their death. They're not worried about it. They live carefree. When in reality, that moment that they pass into eternity, a day that they have, may have been living carefree, is when they will see that their carefreeness has brought them utter destruction. What Asaph is saying is that with God, you are invincible. That nothing can touch you because your greatest enjoyment is God. Understand that. It's not that you're invincible because you think that. You're invincible because no one can steal the greatest joy from you. Your relationship with God. On earth, God is all that we can ever want or need in life and death and sickness and health, even as our bodies waste away, Asaph is saying is that God is all you should want and need because he offers something that expands past our point of death here on earth, something that stretches long into eternity. And you might be thinking, okay, like I understand this, right? We, we talk about this, that eternity will be better, with God, that everything will be better, all the rights will be made wrong. We say, that's great. Asaph found peace. He found happiness. But you may be sitting out here even this morning and saying, but I'm still doubting. I'm still wondering why there isn't this peace that God promised because I look around the world and all I see is chaos. All I see is brokenness. That truth that God is sovereign, that eternity with him is going to be greater than any treasures on earth, it's not making the pain go away. I still feel the heartache. We remember Malachi 3.6 that says, For I, the Lord, do not change. And friends, I don't have any nice quotes to tell you anything new that you probably haven't heard. But one of the great comforts is in that truth. For I, the Lord, 
do not change. Circumstances might change around us. Situations might change around us. People will change around us. But one of the comforting things we have in this world is that God does not change. We remember the hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Through death into life everlasting, he passed and we follow him there. Over us sin, over us sin no more hath dominion, for more than conquerors we are. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And all the and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Friends, the hope and the comfort we have is that Jesus outshines the greatest treasures you can ever imagine. We have a more sure hope than Asaph did. He looked and he could see the promise of Abraham and Moses, and he can look and he can know these truths, but friends, we have something he didn't. That Jesus, the long-promised Savior, Messiah, has come. That he came and he lived a perfect life. That he died for your sins and for mine. That he rose again and that he has promised to keep us and to bring us home. The comfort is, friends, is that Jesus made a promise and he made good on it. Jude 24 and 25 says, now to, who, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. As Christ followers, we don't need God's explanations when we have God's declarations that he will make good on his promises. It's a tough pill to swallow that God's plans are better than our plans. But friends, the promises of God are for our benefit. There's three promises that I can give you that you can cling to when you're struggling, when you're doubting, when you don't know what to say. One is that God is good. Asaph declared that for us. Number two is that God is just, that he is fair, that he is righteous. And number three, that God will put everything right. Not in this moment, but in eternity when he says he will wipe away all tears, where there will be no more sorrow, where there will be no more sadness. Friends, the reason we can have hope in a wicked world is because God is never changing. Because Deuteronomy 32.4 says, the rock, meaning God, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, who is just and upright is he. 
friends, we can have confidence in God. We can have hope in God because he is not like us. If we place our hope and confidence in mankind, we're going to find ourselves disappointed, let down, discouraged, and hopeless. But if we put our faith and trust and hope in Jesus, we will find that it doesn't necessarily mean life gets instantaneously better, but we have a future hope that is better than eternal damnation and separation from God. The things of this world will pass away, but eternity with God will last forever. I mentioned at the beginning about my friend who passed away, Chad. Truthfully, I, I don't have an answer. I, I pose that question to God. God, how is that fair? But what I've come to, the conclusion at the very smallest, God used that in my own life to draw me to a deeper love for his sovereignty. Because if God wasn't sovereign over that moment, I had no hope. It doesn't make it easier. I still miss him. But the truth is, is that he's in a better place now. He's in eternity with Jesus. And now I get to tell you his story, that God used that to help me through difficult circumstances and doubts to have deeper trust in him. So friends, we cling to those three promises because without them, without God being good, without God being just or fair, without the promise that God is going to put everything right, we have no hope in this world. We see what the world is like that we live in. I don't want to live in this forever. It might be nice for a moment, but eternity with Jesus is so much better. Let us pray.